Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Hey there, this is Pastor Nick. This is week two of Discussion Church, and what makes Discussion Church sort of unique is that in the middle of the sermon two times, we are asking our folks that are in person and online to deal with some questions that we're asking. And so during the recording of this particular service, what we're doing in the editing stage is we're removing the time of discussion. And so what you'll hear is the question being asked perhaps a little bit of music playing, and then the answers being given back to whoever is speaking. In this case, this week, it is me. So I hope that helps explain why this might feel a little bit different than some of our normal podcasts, but I also hope that you enjoy it and that the message hits you exactly where God wants it to. Thanks, guys. Hope you enjoy. Good morning. Glad you guys are here today. We're going to just start off with a really easy question for your tables. We've got to have an argument to start off church, okay? What is the best kind of cookie? All right? I know what I think, but I'm curious what your table will come up with. I'll give you a minute. Best kind of cookie. Go. All right. What do we think? What's the best kind of cookie? What did you come up with at your table? A box. <laughs> That might win the morning, okay? The best kind of cookie is a box of cookies. I like that. All right, what else, though? Oatmeal, raisin, chocolate chip. See, that's my table right there, for sure. All right, what else? Peanut butter. What was it? Raisin. Raisin is like a chocolate, is like it wants to be a chocolate chip, but it's not good enough to be a chocolate chip, you know? What is it? Macadamian. Okay, all right. Sugar. Yeah, you can't go wrong with sugar. Sugar on anything is just, you know, it works, right? <laughs> Clearly, it works for some of us. What you got? You have one, Mark? Yeah, chocolate chip. Cho- yep, again, chocolate chip, that's the way to go. Sand tarts. Yeah, so resoundingly, I think our favorite church cookie is a chocolate chip, I think. I, fair to say. <laughs> well, we are going to dig into the book of Joel this morning. And that's a book that maybe some of you don't even know exists in the scriptures. Um, I just quick looked it up in the table of contents for the, the Bibles that are on your table. It's on page 881. It's a little hard to find. It's a small book near the end of the Old Testament. And our scripture comes from there this morning. So feel free to open up to, um, to Joel. And... Our scripture this morning is in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 21, and here's what it says. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and vine yield their riches. Now, in this series, what we're doing is we are looking at the scriptures that say, fear not, or do not fear. We're looking at the scriptures and the people where God is saying those those things to them. Today, we're looking at the book of Joel, and Joel is a short book. It's only three chapters long. If you found it in your Bible, you'll see it's pretty short. Um, Joel is one of the minor prophets, and we call him minor prophet not because his message is less important. All right? I don't want you to think his message is less important than Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or some other prophet. The, the term minor prophet just means his book is short. The major prophet's books are long. The minor prophet's books are short. So he's a minor prophet. Um, Joel doesn't give us many clues as to when he is writing. So many other books, they mention a king or a kingdom. And so we can look and see when did that king rule and we have an idea of when this whole thing happened. Joel doesn't give us any of that. So scholars, the best date they can come up with is a range of dates. 
anywhere from 900 BC to 500 BC. It's a big range. And here's kind of a neat thing with Joel. There's a lot of places, a lot of stories or books in the Bible where the church historically gets into arguments about whether that book or that story should be taken as literal or not, right? So some of those examples might be Jonah. There's debate whether Jonah was a story to teach us a lesson or did it really happen. Another one would be Job. Did Job really happen or was it a story that was teaching us a lesson, right? Joel is another one of those books where people say, you know what, you can take it as, um, as a metaphor, as an, um, an allegory, or you can take it literally, all right? And here's the neat thing. People don't argue about this one. You know, people seem to have like a, some stake in the game with some of those other stories. With this one, people are pretty okay. You can take it either as an analogy or you can take it as it's literal and, or maybe both. And so for me to you, I'm telling you, you could take it both ways. And actually this morning, we're gonna look at it both ways. We're gonna talk about it from a literal perspective, but also we're gonna kind of step back and just look at the wide narrative, the story that it's telling us to get another perspective of. So look at it both ways. In our passage this morning, the one that I just read, God is telling the land and the animals not to be afraid. I don't know if you picked up on that. He's not talking to people. Don't be afraid, land. Don't be afraid, wild animals. And so you might wonder, why in the world is God telling the animals in the land not to be afraid? Why isn't he talking to people? Well, I have an idea. You have to go with me, okay? I want you to listen to this verse from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God says this. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the, in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Okay, so you know, if you caught that with me. What is mankind supposed to rule over? Fish, birds, livestock, wild animals, and creatures that move along the ground, right? Now, if we jump forward to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15... It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So in chapter one, we learn that mankind is given animals to rule over. In chapter two, we learn that God gave the land to mankind to work and to take care of. And that's the sort of knowledge that every young Israelite growing up would have. Every young Israelite would know God gave us, his people, the land to care for and to work, and the animals to steward and care for, okay? They would all know that. So now you're wondering, why in the world am I talking about this? What does this have to do with God telling the land and the animals not to fear? And here's, here's my answer. Because the land and the animals are along for the ride. Whatever mankind chooses, the land and the animals, they're along for the ride. They don't, they don't make choices like we make choices, right? Here, I'll give you an example. How many people here love to go on hikes? Hiking in the woods, right, or walking in the woods? How many people have walked on the Conewago Trail before or walked on the river trail, yeah? How many people enjoy seeing deer in their backyard grazing in the grass at night or disappearing into the woods as they run? Like, as long as they're not running in front of us as we're driving, we're good with deer, right? We like that stuff. I love that stuff too. A significant part of my education was in conservation, and I, a big part of my favorite hobby, hunting, is conservation. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing about Pennsylvania. You know, when we walk out the church doors and we look outside, we see farm fields and forests, and that's mostly what we see here. You go further west and you see deserts and things like that. But Pennsylvania is kind of this lush area. When it was, when European settlers got here, there was... It was 90% forests, 90%, okay? So you look outside, all those farm fields and developments and houses, you're not there, 90% forest. There are early explorers and naturalists that write in their journals that when they're in Pennsylvania and they're walking in the woods, the, the canopy of the forest is so thick that even when the sun is high in the sky, it feels like nighttime in the woods. Right, so not only are we 90% woods in Pennsylvania, but it is thick, thick forests. By the end of the 1800s, 60% of Pennsylvania is clear cut. 
okay? And clear cutting, if you're unfamiliar with the term, is just, it's taking an area of forest and cutting everything down. So the only thing that's left that you can see are stumps and bushes. Uh, Mike, I have some pictures if you can pull them up on the screen for me, give you an idea. Specifically in the northern and western part of the state. So the places where I go hunting, places like Clearfield County or Center County, places that I know you guys are familiar with and some of you guys have cabins in those places, there was nothing left but open land. John, John Muir, um, he's a naturalist, and he wrote down that when he got to that side of Pennsylvania, he called the land the Pennsylvania Desert because that's what it looked like. For hundreds of miles, all that could be seen was stumps. Actually, over nine million acres were clear cut at that time. That's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Like when you look outside now, we have trees. It's hard to imagine a day when as far as you could see, that's all you could see. But that's what it was. Now when the forest disappeared, so did the white-tailed deer. At this time in history, the white-tailed deer were gone from Pennsylvania. And later in the 1900s, they had to be reintroduced from other states. And so there was a time without the forests that we love and a time without the deer that we enjoy. And you might be thinking in your head, well, we need space for farmland and we need space for, for houses. And you're right, absolutely. And people have been making farmland and houses for a really long time since they got here, but not in the same way that we do now. A farmer didn't have that much space. They, they had horse pulled plows. They harvested with horses. They didn't have mechanical tractors to do that. So the space that they cleared was much smaller. We're not talking about this being done so a farmer can uh, do a field there. We're not talking about that so that a housing development can go in because they didn't have those back then. What, what orchestrated this was that the logging industry was so huge at that time. They needed wood for everything, wood for houses, wood for ships, wood for ships' masts, there was so much money to be made in wood. And so the wood industry, men, <coughs> greed, money, that is what led to 9 million acres being clear-cutted. Now, if we were to like pretend that our sanctuary is a time machine, and I just was like, all right, we're transporting back to that spot in Center County, and we walked out of the church together, and we looked at all of that, would any of us go, ah, that's the tree's fault? That's a tree's fault that they're all cut down. No, that would be really silly, right? Where we were noticing that the whitetails were gone, we wouldn't say, ah, oh, it's the deer's fault that they're gone. No, again, that would be really silly. The fault only lies with one thing, and that is with mankind. My, my, my point is that whatever we decide, good or bad, the land and the animals, they're along for the ride. Whatever we do, whatever we do with what we have been given, our choices have an impact beyond ourselves. And we kind of know that, right? You can start thinking about that. That's gonna be our first question to discuss in a little bit here. Our choices have impact beyond ourselves. Not just with other people, not just with our relationships, but also with the land that we've been given and the animals we've been given. This is sort of the point that Joel is making in his book. So Joel tells this incredible story in three chapters about this plague of locusts that come and they hit God's people. And they are just, he describes them like an army, that they have no mercy, that they come through. And when the bigger ones come through, the littler ones follow. And whatever the bigger ones didn't eat, the littler ones eat. And there's just nothing left. And because they have destroyed everything, the land and God's people end up in a terrible famine. Locusts hit the people, the farms, everyone suffers. <clears throat> Prophets like Joel and Jeremiah and Isaiah they saw these sort of catastrophic events as God's judgment against them. If the people weren't right with God, then the bad stuff would happen. If the people got right with God, then God would bless them. Now, we don't see things quite so black and white today, but I do believe it's possible God has the power and the ability to still work in that way. That doesn't mean that every bad thing that happens is some sort of judgment against us. The point is that 3,000 years ago, that's how God's people saw the world working. That's what they understood was happening. 
If God's people would repent, then God would heal what was broken. If God's people didn't repent, then the brokenness and the pain and the suffering would continue. That's what Joel thinks. That's what his people thinks. That's what he sees when he looks around and sees something not too far from the picture you're looking at after the locusts have gone through and left all their fields bare. All their stores are gone. Their children are hungry and they have no hope. He's left feeling empty and barren. That's the context of Joel this morning. That's the context of the passage that we're reading. So that's our first section. Our first section is always context. Let's take the verse, let's take the person, let's put it into context so you have an idea of what's happening. And we're not just cherry picking verses out of scripture so we make scripture say whatever we want it to say. We want you to have a good holistic understanding of what it says. So here's your question at your table. What do you think about the idea that our choices affect more than just us. What do you think about the idea that our choices affect more than just us? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you have a story of a time that you've seen it or experienced it? What do you think? And our folks who are online, we wanna invite you to put your answers in the comments and we'll read those off so that we all get an idea of where we're at and what we're thinking, all right? I'll give you guys three minutes, go. Okay. All right, what do you think? What are the answers? What are the things you talked about at your table? What, do you think that your actions affect more than yourself? Yes absolutely. yes, absolutely, definitely, okay. Any examples? Anybody wanted to share? Relationships? Okay. So in like a relationship, a hasty decision can really affect the other person's relationship? Absolutely. It's good. To share with one another affects each, yeah, absolutely, that's such a good answer. When we share or we don't share, right? We're, we're people who are blessed, and God blesses us not so we can hoard our blessings, but we can bless other people. And when we don't make the decision to bless other people, and instead we keep those things for ourselves, that absolutely affects other people. That's great. Anything else? A job. That's a wonderful example. So Bob was saying that if you take a job out of state, your family is gonna have to follow you and that affects your family, right? Pulling your, your kid out of school at a certain grade might be even more impactful than at a younger age or something. Yes, impact, good. Okay. Okay, so in parenting, you're equipping your children for life and if you don't equip them well, they're gonna have more challenges ahead. That's great. Online, Lucy said all of our choices have a ripple or a trickle-down effect. Very little that we do affects only us. Uh, Liz said that uh, most of the time it does, but not all the time. Sometimes we can make decisions that don't have an effect outside of ourselves. Um, no man is an island. And uh, Christine says this is a very true statement. The ripple affects all of those around us. So it sounds like we have a pretty good consensus that our actions, the things that we do, maybe the things that we say the way that we live does affect the people around us. That's great. Good job, guys. Thanks for doing that. Um, I want to say, before I get into the next piece, it's important for me to know that you know, <laughs> it's important for me to know that you know that I'm not up here trying to teach you that when lightning strikes or a tornado touches down or a hurricane hits or a worldwide pandemic erupts, that that is God judging you or us for something that we, we did. I don't believe that, all right? I, I don't think that scripture supports that as 100% sort of guaranteed that's what's happening when those things happen. Uh, I, in fact, I think that we have plenty of scripture that goes against that. You know, we think there's a time when um, two disciples want to rain down a fire, an act of God on a whole town of people, right? And Jesus says, that is not of my spirit. That is of a different spirit. Or we think about the story of Job and how Job is, he's afflicted with all sorts of stuff and it has nothing to do with his faith and nothing to do with his behavior. And in fact, when Job's friends come to him and say, you must have done something wrong, God rebukes his friends. So I don't think that it's, this is the normative way that God communicates with us. And I don't want you to leave here hearing from me or thinking that I'm trying to teach you that the normal way God communicates with us is by sending terrible things to destroy us. However, I do think it's also important for us to have a balanced uh, a view of scripture. And so at the same time, as that's not the normative thing, I think it's possible. We do have things like the Genesis 6 flood. We do have things like the plagues that hit Egypt in the time of Moses. So I believe that God has the power. I believe in the possibility, but it would be a mistake, I think, for us to think that all things bad that happen 
or a judgment against us. I think it's a mistake for us to think that most bad things that happen to us is a judgment against us. And while I understand that, and I hope as a community we can understand that, the other thing that we have to, we have to know is that 3,000 years ago, that is the perspective that Joel had. That is the perspective that God's people had. They understood God to speak through curses and through blessings. So while I understand that that is not how God normally speaks to us, in Joel's day, that is what they understood. So as we kind of dive into this, we just have to kind of live in the tension of what we know now and what we're reading and their understanding of things back then. I hope that makes sense to you. Um, an interesting thing about Joel is that unlike every other, the term is pre-exilic, so before the exile, pre-exilic prophet, Joel doesn't create a list of sins that God's people have committed that have led to this judgment against them, all right? So if we read Joel cover to cover, you know, a very short book, you can read it now if you want, there's not a list of things. Joel's not saying, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. What Joel is, is saying is, there's this terrible calamity that has hit us. We must repent. And I think that there's something, there's something about that that we need to sit with this morning, okay? Now, I will say this too. You are going to get out of our time together this morning as much as you put into our time together this morning. So I'm going to ask you to be a little reflective in this next section, we're going to talk a little bit about the pandemic, a little bit about the last 18 months, a little bit about what we felt during that time. And I'm going to invite you to reflect on some of that. If you choose not to, that is your choice, and that's okay. I, will not, I don't judge you, and no one at your table will judge you for not wanting to go there. But I think it's worth us looking at how we walked through that for us to understand how Joel might or might not apply for us this morning. In chapter 1, Joel says this. He says, hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land, has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Now, I'll pause there. Can you relate to that feeling when you look around and you say, my goodness, has anything like this ever happened before? Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, can you remember anything ever like this in your days? How many times in the last 18 months have you felt that or have you said those words? You know, we just talked about Pennsylvania and the clear cutting, right? I can't imagine walking outside and seeing a Pennsylvania clear cut, not in my day, right? I can't imagine a Pennsylvania without white-tailed deer, not in my day. I can't imagine that the land of the free and the home of the brave would ever deal with such political bitterness that it would divide the country. Not in my day. Oh, wait. I can't imagine a worldwide pandemic that would divide a country and a world and churches. Not in my day. Oh, wait. See, like I said earlier, perhaps the prophet Joel is talking about a very real plague of locusts, but it's also possible that the locusts that came or an analogy for something else. The key with Joel is can you relate to what he is talking about? With all the strife and the division, with our politics and our religion and our pandemic over the last 18 months, I can relate to Joel's words. Because I can, I'm assuming that there is at least some of you out there that can relate to Joel's words feeling incredulous at what you're looking at and seeing around you, having never seen it before, having parents and grandparents who've never seen it before. In verse 10 of chapter 1, he says this. Joel says, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, and the oil fails. And we can look at that at a very surface level. We can, we can look at this as, 
like a very literal story, right? If, if locusts came through and they devoured everything, this is what would happen to the land, right? And in a farming culture, this would certainly be impactful to them. This would be upsetting to them. But let's for a moment pretend that this whole locust thing is an analogy for something else that has come through and caused catastrophe. Let's, let's lean into with me, if you would, lean into these words. He says, the fields are ruined, What are the fields? The fields, it's where I get my food right now. It's my sustenance. Over the last 18 months, I know there are some of you that couldn't see your family. They were separated for a long time. You couldn't couldn't see your loved ones. And for some of you, your loved ones is what gives you sustenance. And it sure felt like the fields dried up. Some of you ended up in the hospital and you couldn't take visitors. Some of you ended up with broken relationships because of how this person felt about something. Your sustenance was gone. He says the ground is dried up. What's the ground? What's the farm field? That's my future crops. That's where I'm gonna plant my seed next year, next season. That's my food for later. That is my future. In a very real way, in a community like this, a farming community, the ground's health was their future. How many people through this pandemic looked around and said, I can't see my future. I don't see a way back from this. I look at the divided world, I look at our divided families, I look at our divided churches, and I can't see a future around what's coming and what's happening. Joel says the grain is destroyed. And and what's the grain? The grain is the harvest that has already happened. We've put aside for the future. That is is what I'm going to rely on if this year's crop isn't very good. That is what I'm going to feed my cattle with. That's like my savings account. And so many people's savings accounts whittled away as jobs and work shut down, as things went differently than they thought, as they were laid off not to find another job. He says the new wine is dried up. And what's wine? Wine is the thing that's safe to drink because water is often not safe to drink. Wine is the thing that they use for medicine when they need healing. I and mean, Paul tells Timothy, we just studied Timothy, right? He says, take a little wine to settle your stomach, he says. Wine is medicine, and so this is their safety. Their safe drinking water, their medicine, it's gone. I don't feel safe anymore. How many people looked around during everything that happened over the last 18 months and said, I don't feel safe? And maybe it wasn't a physical safety issue, though I have friends in some places around our country who felt physically unsafe. Maybe you felt, I don't feel safe to share my opinion. I don't feel like there is a safe place for me to talk about what I'm feeling. How many people lost their safety? Joel finishes this verse. He says, the oil fails. And oil is what they put in their lamps. Oil was how they had light to see at nighttime. The way forward, the path that was lit, it seemed to disappear. It becomes really easy for me to forget to appreciate my current crop when it's healthy. It becomes easy for me to forget to be thankful for a ground and soil that is well nourished when it is well nourished. It is easy for me to forget to be grateful when my silo is full of grain and my savings account overflows. Do you see what I'm getting at? See, Joel doesn't list off a whole bunch of sins that people did. But when tragedy strikes, he calls God's people to repentance This is something we need to pay attention to, especially in the aftermath of last year. We will not grow as a people if we do not reflect on where we have come from. It doesn't mean we get stuck in our past. It doesn't mean that that's where we live. It doesn't mean that's what defines us. But if we never look back to see how did I handle, how did I act, what did I say, what did I do, then we're never gonna grow as we move forward. We're just gonna repeat the same mistakes again and again and again. And if you always do what you've always done, you always get what you always got. So we need to put a stake in the ground and say, you know what, I'm going to reflect on what just happened so that we can move forward and we can move forward well. What did we lose sight of? 
What did we take advantage of? What went unappreciated until it was gone? This section, the second section of the sermons in this series, it's a practice. We're talking about a practice. What's a practice that we can do? The practice this morning is repentance. May we repent from our overindulgence in the plenty. May we repent from our lack of appreciation. May we repent from when we fail to see God's goodness And before you start to argue with me or get it in your head and you're arguing in your head already that failing to see God's goodness or losing sight of our blessings, that's not a sin, Nick. I've never seen that show up in a list of sins. Listen, hear me. Repentance is changing direction. That's all that it is. That's what the word means. It means we're going in a direction and now we have altered our course. We have changed direction. If we are heading or we are in a place that does not honor God, we must change direction, right? I don't need a list of sins, of do's and don'ts. What I need to be able to do is take account of my life and say, am I living in a way that honors my Lord and my Savior? And so when I lose sight of my blessings, when I'm not appreciative of all that I have, is that a thing that honors God or is it a thing that dishonors God? And I would argue with you that's a thing that dishonors God and I need to repent of it and change my direction so that I may live in a place and be in a place and exist in a place where I am thankful for all that God has done. We must repent from those things. We must look back on our lives and decide if we need to repent of those things. And what does it mean to repent? Well, in, in, in Joel, Joel gives us a couple of things. He says, um, the priests wore sackcloth, which means that the priests, they took off their nice robes, the things that denoted that they were somehow held above these other folks or they were more clean or more holy or something. They took off the comfortable robes and they put on itchy, terrible sackcloth that was dirty. They fasted. And I don't want to get into fasting too much because fasting is a practice we're going to talk about later in the series, but fasting was something they did. When they stopped eating and they felt hungry, they prayed. And they called their elders together. They called the people who were the wisest, the oldest, the most experienced from their community. They called them together and said, please pray. Will you pray? Chapter 2, God says this to his people. He says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So God calls them back. God gives them an idea of what they might want to do to take account of their lives and decide, is there a place where I need to mourn because I didn't before? Do I need to weep because there's something that I did or something that I said that I should not have done and said? Do I need to take off the things that are making me comfortable and replace it with something that is gonna remind me that comfort is not the key? God calls them back and gives them an idea of what they can do, but all of these are outward signs. Every single one. Praying, fasting, weeping, mourning, wearing sackcloth, calling the elders together to pray together. Those are all outward signs. And so the hope, God's hope, is that any of those outward signs that you may do in repentance, that Joel's people may do in repentance, that those outward signs are actually a reflection of an inward reality. What do I mean? Just after God tells them, to fast, weep, and mourn. In verse 13, chapter two, he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. It was common in those days if you were mourning or repenting that you would tear your clothes as a way to signify that you were in the space of mourning or repenting. And God says, I'm not looking for the, for the torn clothes. I don't want you to tear open your clothes. I want you to tear open your heart to me. That is, my, that is what I care about. I don't care about the show. I am concerned with your heart. So if, if, if weeping and mourning and fasting are things that will help you get into a place where you realize I've been going in this direction and I now need to make a change and go in a different direction, by all means, do those things. But what God cares about is that your heart is actually the thing that has turned and allowed you to repent of whatever direction you were going in. 
Make no mistake, the outward sign, not a bad thing. But if it's only an outward sign, it is empty, and God is not interested in it. He wants your heart. He wants my heart. So here's our second question. And this is reflective. This is, let's look back at the pandemic, okay? What good thing did you overlook before the pandemic, but now you see it as a blessing? As we begin to come back into normalcy, as we're allowed to see one another, I mean, not just be, but like see one another. What good thing did you not, you took it for granted, and now you're like, ah, 18 months without it, and I know that's a good thing. What is that for you, okay? Go ahead, talk at your table. Three minutes. Okay. What are some of the things? Some of the things that maybe we took, took for granted that uh, since going through what we've been through in the last 18 months, we now see as the blessing that it always was. Yeah. Yes, relationships, being with someone in the same space, personal contacts, a hug, that sort of thing. That's great. Anything else? Say again? School. Just being there physically, seeing your friends. Yes, that's good. Somebody else? Church. Yeah. She says church online is just not the same as gathering in the body. And I, I can tell you from being one of the people here preaching to an empty room, Kyle leading worship to an empty room, you know, the first time we had people come back, what a different energy it felt like in here. I, I agree. What else? Yeah, freedom to come and go in places with, without worrying about capacity, right? We all see the signs on the wall that say, like, this room's capacity is so much, and we ignore it. But suddenly, the capacity has mattered so much more. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Seeing people's smiling faces. Yes, it's hard to see that, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. She said that she spent time with her family. Her parents live with her, but her siblings don't have that same advantage. So you got to be with them, and siblings not so much. It's hard. I have friends whose parents live in Canada, and with the border shut down, it was just impossible for so long. Yeah, it's great. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a tension we live in right now with fear still because it's not quite all gone. Sure. So she said that her son got it, uh, COVID, and got really sick. Um, That, I mean, so many people got it, ended up in the hospital, and you couldn't visit them. I know, like, I, a lot of my job pre-pandemic was visitation, and suddenly it was like, I can't get in anywhere, Right? Yeah, I, I totally didn't appreciate the visitation piece until it was gone, and I was like, well, how am I supposed to take care of folks that are stuck in the hospital now? Yeah, that's great, Laura. Yeah, Laura was talking about isolation, so just being by yourself, but also lack of communication when Mark was in the hospital and Laura was out of the hospital. So it's really hard to go through that with somebody when you have that disconnection. Online, a couple of things said. Um, perhaps taking granted being able to honor those who have died. So memorial services and funeral services. Um, Someone else says the pandemic affected the people, the trust in the people that you didn't know. Uh, Someone else says being with my church family and being with them, it helps to strengthen my faith. Being able to attend in-person grief meetings, but now not being able to do that. The process is long and hard. Yeah, it's been a long and hard process. There's no doubt about that. How about the simple things? I think, I think those, yeah, so Barry said the simple things like going for ice cream, and I hope those are some of the things that now we're just like, we're breathing in and going, it's so good for this simple little thing that I never really thought about a simple little thing before, and now I can do this again. That's, that's good. That's, I think that's part of repentance is now appreciating that which went unappreciated. Let's get into this last section. Third section every week is always going to be Christ connection. 
How does what we're talking about, the person Joel or the practice of repentance, how does that connect to Jesus, okay? So you can go here if you want, but you don't have to. Matthew 4 tells the story of Jesus being tested in the wilderness by the devil. When he returns from the wilderness, the first thing he learns is that John the Baptist has been put into prison. And so scripture tells us that immediately Jesus goes to the area of Galilee and he begins to preach. And what does he preach? Scripture tells us what he preaches in this region is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You're going in a direction the knowledge that the kingdom of heaven is near should have you go in a different direction. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So Jesus is traveling around Galilee, specifically near the Sea of Galilee, and he encounters some fishermen. And he comes to the fishermen, and what is the message he's preaching all along the shore? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he goes to them and he says, Simon, Peter, Andrew, follow me. And the fishermen drop their nets and follow him. A little while later, he comes across two more brothers fishing, James and John, and he says, come and follow me, and they drop their nets, and they follow him. This moment of dropping their nets, this moment of of stopping the fishing and following Jesus marks a significant adjustment in their direction. It's hard for us to picture that, but I mean, if you've joined us for any of the chosen nights, you get an idea of some of the family associated, right, with the disciples. Think about James and John and Peter and Andrew. They, they make their living by fishing. They get fish. They sell the fish. Selling the fish gets money for the family to take care of the family, to put food on the table and, and clothes on their backs. And so when they drop their nets and follow Jesus, it doesn't just affect James and John and Andrew and Simon Peter. It affects their families. It affects every single person that they're providing for. It's a choice they made for for everyone. Is there anything wrong with fishing? No, right? Fishing's fine. Some of you guys really like to fish, and you'd be really upset if I said there's something wrong with fishing. There's nothing wrong with fishing. Of course not. So when Jesus comes upon these guys who are just making a living fishing, and he calls them to make a change, why does he call them out of fishing? What's wrong with fishing? There's nothing wrong with fishing. Maybe you can relate to that. You were kind of headed one way. You were maybe in one career path. You had a plan for your life, and then somebody, somebody called you into a different career path or a different plan or made a sharp course correction to your life. Maybe you can relate to what that might feel like. In so many ways, this is the message of the prophet Joel. And I'll frame it in a story that's it's partially my story, but in a way that I think it's so many of our stories. I think you guys can relate to this. What if the message of Joel is as simple as this? There is a way to live that focuses on you. God provides and we miss it. He blesses and we ignore it. We have an abundance and we take it for granted. We are just focused on having enough and getting more. And enough is never enough, so we focus on getting more and more and more until it goes away. Until the locusts come, whatever the locusts might be. Maybe it's a pandemic. Maybe it's just tragic loss of a loved one. Maybe it's loss of a job a bad investment or a sudden accident or a sickness. I mean, you name it, because locusts come out of nowhere. You can't predict them, and they devastate you. And those things don't just affect us, right? They affect the people that we love, the people we care for, the people who depend on us. When Joel looks at the, at the locusts, he says, it doesn't just affect the people, it affects the land of the animals, But when we look at the locust, a pandemic or a job loss or the tragic loss of a loved one, it affects our spouses and our children, maybe our employees if we own a business. So we get into a routine of of living for ourselves until something terrible wakes us up. And when that terrible thing slaps us, suddenly we see the barrenness of the land that is left behind after the locusts. And maybe the emptiness is truly new, 
Or maybe the emptiness has always been there and finally you're just seeing it. Your eyes are opened and because of it, you are finally willing to hear God's word say, open up your heart to me. Don't rend your clothes, rend your heart. Rock bottom is what some folks call it. In some ways, many of us hit rock bottom like we've never have before during the pandemic. And because we hit rock bottom during the pandemic, our ears were opened to God's word in a way it never was before. Because we had our good comfort clothing on and now suddenly it was gone. We hear God's word say, tear open your heart to me, change direction. And here's the cool thing, it's not just you change direction. God says, let's change direction. Because we learned last week that we're never alone. There's nowhere we go without God. So when God comes to you and he calls you to change the direction of your life or your hearts, God comes with you to do it. He doesn't leave you. He puts his arm around you and he walks with you. And so we rend our hearts. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. And in turning to God, hopefully our lives take on a a new look, a new sound, a new direction. Joel notices in his book that when people allow their hearts to return to God, God heals the land. They look around with eyes that are different than their eyes before. And they don't see barrenness, they see growth. They see fruit being born. God's people begin to be blessed with plenty. This is not prosperity gospel because plenty becomes redefined for us. Suddenly it's not about how much more I can get, how much more can I have. Suddenly we, we learn the word enough. I have enough. I have plenty. I have so much. I have enough. I have plenty. I can share it with others. So instead of missing the blessings, our eyes are open to finally see the blessings. Instead of ignoring the abundance, we become more prone and more free to share the abundance. So we move from a place of barrenness that is absent God to a place that is focused on God. And I, I think about this. We walk in a way that is barren. And we don't have eyes to see how barren it is. And then something changes that. And suddenly we can see this path that I'm on is barren. It doesn't lead anywhere. There's no life here. The fields are dried up. And so we turn into a new direction, a place that is focused on God, and we realize all this time there has been so much that has been given to us and blessed upon us, and we didn't have eyes to see it until it was removed from us. And the key here is that we move from one place to another. That, it's so simple. That is repentance. Repentance is a change in direction. It's moving this way and now moving a new way. We move in a way that is more geared, more focused on Jesus himself. We move from our way to God's way. Our way to God's way. And what does God's way look like? Well, it's, it's not fully arrived here yet, right? Repent for the kingdom is near. It's not fully here. What could it look like? Well, Joel gives us a picture. Joel invites us to kind of close our eyes and bask in a picture of what will it look like when God's way is fully here. He says this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. See, there is this wonderful gift. There is a place for everyone in the way of God. No one is left out. When you read that, there is no one left out. The young, the old, the men, the women, servants and non-servants, everyone is included in God's new way. 
So we're not defined by the brokenness that we just traveled through. We're not defined by the Pennsylvania desert or the barrenness of the path that we were on. We're not defined by the job we lost or the person that we lost. We're not defined by our forgetfulness of God's blessing. No. God puts his arms around us. He leads us into a new direction, and he says, I have a future for you. I have good plans for you. We become people that are defined by God, his way, his spirit poured out on us, defined as people who are beloved, defined as his children, defined as his friends, defined as his followers. We are defined as God's people. You are not alone. You are not isolated any longer. You don't walk this by yourself. There is a community of people that walk this with you. You have others. You have us. You are God's people. <clears throat> Here's our invitation this morning. Make a move. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what God is like pressing upon your heart. I don't know if there's something that you just weren't thinking about before the pandemic, if there's a relationship or a, <coughs> excuse me. I don't know what the area of barrenness is in your life. Only you do. You can look at your life and see where you've missed the mark. And it doesn't have to be something that's on some sort of sin list. <laughs> a place that you've gone to or a place that you are that doesn't honor God. God is calling you out of that place today. My prayer for you, my prayer for all of us, my prayer for myself is that we would look at our lives and we would draw a line in the sand and we would say, whatever path that I was on that was empty from God, that was barren, that was that Pennsylvania desert, when I looked around and all I saw were stumps and bushes, that is not what God wants for me. We draw a line in the sand and we say, no more. Today my path splits off and I'm gonna go in a different way. That is my prayer for us. And I pray that we let nothing stop us, that nothing will get in our way, that we would not feel isolated. And you would know that there are people sitting in this room who wanna put their arms around your shoulders and walk with you every step of the way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.